So if you're uh, new with us, again, it's great to have you. We are um, working our way through the Gospel of Luke, just verse by verse, uh, and we invite you in on that study now uh, as we just continue with our study uh, that will actually uh, take us to the empty tomb by the end of, of the message. Uh, in chapter 7, we've been asking the question, who is this Jesus? And we looked at uh, Jesus as the one who uh, has power over sickness and over death. We looked last week at Jesus being the promised one, the expected one, and today we see Jesus as the Savior who is worthy of our love. Um, we're including chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 into this study. The earliest Greek manuscript divisions uh, combine these two uh, passages, and for good reason. It shows that this sinful woman, as she's called in chapter 7, was not uh, an extraordinary, unique case, but actually Jesus was in the business of transforming many women. Uh, by his grace. And some of those are mentioned there in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And so what I want us to do today is to look at Jesus through the eyes of women. We've looked at Jesus through the eyes of a number of different individuals already, and today we see Jesus through the eyes of these women who have been transformed by his grace. And they're noted here in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, um, and, and then some of them reappear again at the empty tomb. And only Luke includes this little paragraph, which shows us uh, individuals like Mary Magdalene, who features so prominently in the resurrection. This is the only pre-passion uh, verse that includes Mary Magdalene. And so uh, let's look at this together, pray for the Lord's help now as we uh, study uh, Luke chapter 7 and 8. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the realities that we've just sung about, uh, for the good news. We pray now that you would come and be our teacher. Come and stir our affections, awaken us to worship and to service and to full obedience to you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray he would come now and be our teacher and uh, bring us more into the likeness of Jesus. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Pastor Vaughn Roberts of Oxford, England, uh, was hosting a series of evangelistic uh, meetings uh, that he simply called Questioning Jesus. And about 80 or so folks, he said, were turning up uh, uh, each week at these meetings, and many of them had real questions about the faith. Some of them actually had come to saving faith. Some were close to coming to faith. And then there was a gentleman that approached him after one of the meetings, and he says, I'm definitely an atheist. He said, um, I'm a convinced atheist, and that will never change. And so Pastor Robert said, well, why do you keep coming back uh, to these meetings? And he says, well, I've not come to learn about Christianity. I've come because I'm convinced that religion is harmful. And so I've come to discourage anyone who's here in becoming religious, and those who are, I would like for them to uh, abandon religion, because religion is, quote, guilt-inducing and oppressive. I wonder how you would respond to uh, this gentleman, that religion is guilt-inducing, oppressive, harmful. Roberts responded well, I think. He says, well, I don't think religion has a monopoly on oppressive and harmful behavior. Going on to state some of the horrors uh, of history that have been led by atheistic regimes. But having said that, he acknowledged that much harm has been done throughout history in the name of religion. But then he said something very important. He said, I've got no great desire to defend religion, but I do want to commend Jesus Christ. And there is a significant difference between the two. In this story in chapter 7, you see a significant difference between religion in this Pharisee, whose name is Simon, and Jesus Christ, who transforms this lady and goes on to transform other ladies. And what you see is that Jesus 
isn't here to harm or oppress, but he's here to forgive and liberate. He's come to set the captives free. He said in Luke 4, that was his mission. And here we see some of the captives who are being set free. It is true that a lot of man-made religion is harmful and oppressive, but Jesus has come to give us life and come to give us liberty. And there is a significant difference between being religious and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what we've also seen here in Luke's gospel is that this good news is for the world. It's not just for one uh, particular people group. Regardless of your race, of your vocation, of your gender, of your class, this Jesus is for you. In fact, just in chapter 7, we've seen Jesus through the eyes of a Gentile soldier. And then we saw Jesus through the eyes of a grieving widow. And then we saw Jesus through the eyes of a doubting prophet. And prior to that, we've seen Jesus heal paralytics, heal lepers. We've seen him call fishermen to be his disciples. Jesus here is the Savior for the world. And here, one of the things that made Jesus so unique is that he had female disciples. That was really unheard of in his day. And we shouldn't take this to uh, some ridiculous uh, uh, you know, extreme. Jesus is not a radical feminist, as we understand that sort of talk today. But we do need to see that when Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, chapter 8, verse 1, that had implications for everyone, including women. And he had many women disciples who followed him. And today, uh, we could say, praise God for women who love Jesus and love his church. Um, and here we see uh, several of them. And they just shine in the Gospels. You know, the, the people who are the buffoons in the Gospel are the guys. <laughs> it's not the ladies. Uh, and so their, their gender is significant. But what I want you to see here is, is the, the most significant thing about these ladies is their gratitude to Jesus. This is what's exemplary for every man and woman. It's their love for Jesus that speaks so powerfully to us. Jesus gives that great line when he says, those who are forgiven much, love much. And the reason this first lady pours out extravagant worship to Jesus is she had been forgiven much. And the reason we see Mary Magdalene follow Jesus all the way to the crucifixion, to the burial, and the resurrection is that she had been delivered from much. She had experienced much grace. And it's this bond of gratitude that holds these ladies to Jesus and kept holding them all the way through the events of Easter. And that's very instructive for us, very inspiring for us. And it was C.S. Lewis who said that the earliest Christian converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single historical doctrine, redemption. And we see that today through the eyes of these ladies, what it looks like to be redeemed and what it looks like to experience resurrection power. And so here's what I want us to do as we walk through the text briefly today. I just want to point out three ways in which these ladies experienced the transforming grace of Jesus. And then I want us to back up and look at three ways in which they responded to that grace. So first of all, and we'll spend more time on number one than two and three, so don't get discouraged uh, as I'm working through number one, okay? Uh, First of all, the forgiveness of sin. This is quite obvious. This is what this story is all about. Jesus has been invited to a dinner, which uh, happens a lot. As we've already noted in Luke's gospel, Jesus is regularly at meals, doing a lot of teaching at meals. And this time he has been invited by a Pharisee. If you don't know much about the Pharisees, they were uh, religious leaders, uh, separate ones. And they've invited Jesus. It's not that they want to hang with Jesus. They really want to usually trap Jesus. 
or um, catch Jesus doing something. And so it's not really a party if a Pharisee is inviting you uh, over to his house. Um, but Jesus does go to his house, and that also is encouraging because Jesus came not just to save immoral people, he came to save moral people who are lost in morality or lost in religion. And, and that's the case here with this Pharisee. Uh, Jesus does accept the invitation to hang, and as he does, it says that they're reclining at table. This is a custom that I, I think we ought to bring back as, as people are laying down toward the table with their feet out, out to the side. I, I really like the reclining at table position myself. Um, and, and this would have, have been similar to experience we saw earlier in Luke's gospel, a symposium meal, where it's more out in the courtyard, there's discussion and interaction. So it's not a private dinner, but this is a public ordeal. But one person was not obviously invited or welcomed. She appears in verse 37. And Luke wants us to take notice when he gives us that great Bible word, behold. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now Luke is very gracious. He withholds this lady's name. We don't know who she is. Many have tried to make her out to be Mary Magdalene, but there's no evidence of that. He also withholds her sin. Now, most have said, you know, she was a prostitute, but the text never says that she was a prostitute. She could have been. It seems that her, her lifestyle was at least known. She was a woman of the city, a woman who had been forgiven much, a woman who the Pharisee has a hard time dealing with the fact that Jesus would allow this unholy woman, whatever she did, to touch him. Whatever the case, she makes her way to Jesus boldly. And she doesn't say anything in the story. It's her actions that preach a sermon to us, right? She has this alabaster flask. This would have been a year's wages. So this is not like uh, Old Spice cologne. This is not Axe body spray. Uh, we don't spray that on Jesus, okay? Um, <laughs> She, she's got the good stuff. And um, she brings this, this uh, flask with her. And then moved by the moment, she begins weeping. And you know what this is like when you're caught up in worship. Like you don't drive to church saying, today I'm going to cry. Okay? Today I'm going to do this or this. And, and sometimes you're just surprised when the emotion comes over you. And I think it's one of those moments. As this lady who had been shamed and shunned, we would presume, by the community who had no probably real friends, is befriended by Jesus Christ, loved by him, and she's so moved with emotion, she wets his feet with her tears, begins to wipe them with her hair. Now, ladies only let their hair down for their husband. This was undignified to do such a thing. It was culturally unacceptable. But she is so caught up in the moment of worship that she forgets these normal social constraints. And she pours out her heart in worship. What a beautiful picture. Grateful love for the Savior leads to passionate worship of the Savior. That's what she demonstrates for us. And Jesus receives this. But the Pharisee doesn't like it. Verse 38 to 40, Simon has a problem with this lady touching Jesus. And he wants to know how could a holy man allow this unholy person to touch him? And so Jesus wants to clarify things in verse 40, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it. You don't want him to say it usually. Um, you know, whenever Jesus does a parable about you, it's pretty stinging. Uh, and uh, he got parabled right here. Um, 
And he, he, but it's for his good, and, and we're glad he did, because this parable is very simple, but it's very powerful. He says there's a certain money lender who had two debtors, and one owed him 500 denarii. That would have been about two years' wages. And the other owed him 50 denarii, about two months' wages. And the money lender canceled both debts. And so he asked Simon, which of him would have loved the money lender more? And he says, well, I suppose it would have been the person who had the bigger debt. And Simon got that right. And it's a picture, isn't it, of what Jesus has done for us. That the gospel brings us an impossible gift, right? An impossible gift to us in our hopeless condition. I mean, this sort of thing doesn't happen, right? You should go ask your banker this, this week if he would forgive your mortgage. Uh, tell him you went to church and just wanted to give it a shot and see that it's in the Bible. Jesus told, talked about it uh, and that you would love him a whole lot if, if, if he would do that. Right? Jesus tells this story so that the Simon would recognize the reason this lady is pouring out her praise to him is because she was a 500 denarii sinner. She had a debt that could not be repaid. And so do we. And the reason there isn't great worship coming from us is that we don't realize that. Or we haven't experienced that transforming mercy. You see, until we are disgusted by sin, we will never be dazzled by grace. Right? If you have just the culture's view of sin, which is you rename it or minimize it or dismiss it, then you never get to this. You never get there. But when you see that, you know, how the Bible talks about sin, that we just simply consider our ingratitude to God, what an offense that is. Or how James says, if you break one law, you've broken all of them. Or how Jeremiah talks about our heart being wicked and sick. And to know that Jesus Christ has forgiven us all of that, then it leads us to worship. Grateful love for the Savior leads to great adoration of the Savior. She understands this. Simon doesn't understand this. And isn't it another example in Luke's gospel where the guy you th or, or gal you thought would get the gospel doesn't? You would expect it's the religious person that's all fired up. No, it's this lady of the city. Because grace comes in surprising places. It comes to surprising people. And maybe you think you have a past that is just too rough, that Jesus could never receive you. You've got a story right here to know that you're a great candidate for his grace. Well, there's a further contrast that's made in verses 44 and following where, where Jesus looks to Simon and he says, hey, you, you did not show me any of the, the norms of hospitality. It was normal to wash feet of your guest and so on. And he says, you didn't do any of that and yet here she is. You did not even greet me. You gave me no kiss, but, but she has. You have not anointed me, another common practice, when a stranger would come in, a guest would come into your house. But she has, and then he gives this big point in verse 47, when he says, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who, forgives, who is forgiven little loves little. The woman's reaction, her, her, her actions to Jesus displays that she had experienced his forgiveness, Simon's action displays the fact that he is a stranger to Jesus' forgiveness. And so what he does is what we often do if we don't come through the gospel is that we judge other people to make ourselves look better. So he can, he can, he can look at her 
and try to evaluate himself. And the problem is he stands just in need of that same forgiveness as this lady does. Because you can be lost in morality and immorality, right? Uh, there are a lot of moral people that will perish, right? All sorts of religions teach morality. What makes Christianity unique is Christ. What makes him unique is the forgiveness of sins that we experience. And here you have this Pharisee who is blinded to his need, blinded to his need of Jesus. And she has experienced it. And so he pronounces to her, your sins are forgiven. And we shouldn't misunderstand this. She hasn't earned his forgiveness by these displays of affection, but rather these are evidences of the forgiveness that she has already received. And the pronouncement, your sins are forgiven, is really a word of assurance. And that's the double blessing of the gospel. Jesus forgives us our sin. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And we experience that forgiveness. And then added to that, he gives us assurance that we're forgiven. And so we're not walking around wondering whether or not we're in or not. That when we've experienced his transforming grace, he gives us his assurance. And the others reply at the table, verse 49, who is this? Who does he think he is that can forgive sin? And we've already looked at the answer to that in Luke's gospel, that he is the son of man. He has the authority to forgive sins. And so he tells this woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what is it that saved her? Wasn't her works? Wasn't her reputation? Wasn't her behavior? It wasn't that she got religion. What saved her was her faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the consistent message of the gospel all through the Bible. That if you want to get in on this salvation, experience this forgiveness and have this assurance, what do you need? You have faith in Jesus Christ. This faith saves, and now we go in peace. And there's something else here we should know, right? We know how we are forgiven. At this point in the gospel, we haven't gotten there yet. But we're forgiven not just by Christ, but by the cross of Christ, right? We know this bigger story, that forgiveness comes through this crucified one who took our debt he took our penalty. And the question that's forced upon all of us is that what will, we, what will we do with this massive debt that we can't pay? And people try to get this guilt off of them. They try to get this debt off of them by all manner of things in this life. But the only one who can deal with the debt is the one who traded places with sinners on the cross. He took our punishment. And you see that idea of trading places even in this story where the lady is unwelcomed and yet, then eventually, the reproaches fall on Jesus. You notice in the story how the attention kind of shifts to Jesus. She comes in at first. She's not welcomed, but Jesus welcomes her. He accepts her. Hey, Jesus protects her. He defends her. He takes the scorn on himself. He transfers the shame from her to him. And that's what happened at the cross. Jesus has taken our shame. He's taken our, our place. And if we're in Christ, we are, we are protected. He is our defender. He has taken our debt, and we have received this forgiveness. That's a beautiful story. My friend Tabidi was telling a story about sharing the gospel uh, one time, and a lady cut him off in the middle of it and said, Honey, God gave up on me a long time ago. And he responded, Honey, you don't know my Jesus. And I just want to say that to you. If you feel like, now, I've, I'm damaged goods. Jesus would never receive me. I mean, look at who Jesus is bringing into the kingdom. Look at who's, who he's bringing into the early church. What a crew. 
What a crew. Well, we go from that to this story of deliverance from oppression and disease. Chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus is proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God. He is the king. The king has arrived. The kingdom is an already not yet kingdom. We, the kingdom is here now, but we're waiting for it to be consummated. And he's preaching the good news of that kingdom. And, he says, and it says the, the 12 were with him. And then we're introduced for the first time to this lady who had been healed of seven demons, Mary Magdala from Magdala. That's where we get her, 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 it's not her last name, but we often refer to her as Mary Magdalene. And she has experienced the liberating power of Christ. Now, some have speculated that she was immoral, and that's why she had seven demons. But there's not always a connection between this kind of demon possession and morality. We don't know how this happened or any of the backstory, but we know that she was delivered and that Jesus who came to set the prisoners free, set the oppressed free, did that for Mary. Jesus freed her by his power and out of his love. And Mary Magdalene never got over it. And some of you have experienced that. You say, Jesus saved me out of all manner of stuff, and he's never going to hear the end of it. <laughs> I'm never letting him go. You've been, or you've been delivered out of some kind of abusive situation or some kind of sinful relationship, or some kind of bondage to substances, and Jesus has brought you out of that, you stand in the tradition of Mary Magdalene, and you join her and say, he's never going to hear the end of my praise. Jesus here is, is pulling his disciples out of all sorts of darkness, turning sinners and sufferers into servants. And praise God, he's still doing that. We're, we're, we're among them today, aren't we? And a third expression of grace is also seen in this, entrance into Christ's community. Not only forgiveness of sins and deliverance from oppression, but notice how diverse Jesus' community is now. We've already noted a number of people, disciples and the centurion and so on, who've come into the kingdom, and now we, we read in verse 2 that the 12 were with him, we read of this lady, Mary Magdalene, and then we read of Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there are women who are present. As I mentioned earlier, this would have been unheard of to have women accompany you like this, to, to be among the disciples. In fact, many rabbis even refuse to teach women. But not Jesus. Jesus has the 12 He's got Mary Magdalene. He's got Joanna, right? The fact that she was Herod's household manager shows now that Jesus' ministry has reached all the way into the palace. So, right, we've already seen Jesus caring for the poor and the marginalized, and now we see some who are wealthy who have, and have uh, quite a resume coming into the kingdom. You can be a disciple of Jesus and have money. And welcome to Mago Day if you do. We always have to say that. Right? Um, we have a lot of college students. And so, as it's been said, our offering goes down about $13 when college is not in session. Um, we read of uh, uh, Susanna. We know, no, sorry, let's get back to it. We, uh, we know nothing of her. And then many others that we know nothing of who supported Jesus. Now, I take this to mean all these ladies were apparently wealthy, and they are serving Christ, and they're included into the community. 
And this is picked up later in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, regarding the early church. Luke says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's a band of men and women who had been redeemed by Christ. Jesus doesn't just transform us by the gospel and send us off by ourselves. He brings us into family. He brings us into community, and that is a gift of grace. And think about how special Christian community would have been to these women. Think about this first lady who was no doubt shunned and disgraced and kept at arm's length, now received real Christian love. Or Mary Magdalene, who would have been isolated, now brought into community. Luke gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus through the eyes of these women. My friend Afshin Ziafat grew up in a Muslim home, and he's now pastor in Texas. A few weeks ago, we were at a meeting together, and he said, my sister became a Christian through comparing the way Jesus treated women to what she saw in the Quran. It is a beautiful picture of his grace toward these ladies, and their responses really shine. Here are three responses quickly as I finish. First of all, passionate adoration. What do we do with this message. Well, we follow in the tradition of this first lady, and we pour out our praise to Jesus Christ. Karl Barth once said, the only answer to charis, that is grace, is Eucharista, thanksgiving. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice an echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder, lightning. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Gratitude follows grace. Or perhaps you're reading this morning the Heidelberg Catechism question two. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance. We got an illustration of that right here. Thanking God for such a deliverance. Does the gospel still make you weep? Does it still make you sing? Do you find yourself in moments like this lady just caught up in the emotion of it all? One day we'll see our Christ. I think you'll see a lot of expressions like this as we all fall at his feet and call him Lord and God and pour out our praise to him. People in Luke's gospel so far have responded to Jesus in one of four ways. And I would say these are the four ways you can respond to it. You can be incensed, just angry. A lot of religious people in the Gospels are angry at Jesus. He is eventually put to death. You can be indifferent and just let it roll. You can be intrigued and have real questions. Or you can be enthralled. She's given us a picture of that. A picture of responding to his redemption with worship. Secondly, there's not only passionate adoration in these stories, there's practical assistance. We noted that in chapter 8, verse 3, how these ladies provided for them, that is, Jesus and his disciples, out of their means. So it's one thing to worship Jesus with our words, but we got to say there's more to worship than just our words, right? There's also acts of service. If I just tell my wife I love her multiple times today, which is a good idea, but I don't show any kind of practical display of love, there's a great obvious disconnect, right? And what is beautiful about these ladies is you've got on the one hand this passionate adoration scene followed by, what did they do? They supported Jesus and the disciples. 
In fact, the word used there, provided, in Greek is the technical word for deacon. And they're really doing kind of diaconate ministry. They're ministering to those who minister the word, supporting them. And in other words, they don't come into the kingdom and just, you know, become a spectator. But they're using their resources and their gifts. And Jesus welcomes that. So there's passionate adoration, there's practical assistance, and thirdly, finally, there's public announcement. They respond to Jesus' grace with, by being faithful witnesses of his, and for this, we need to go now from Galilee to Jerusalem. And what I want you to just note briefly is how Luke, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, is really preparing us for what we see in these ladies in Jerusalem during Easter where it's only the ladies who are present at at the crucifixion, present at the burial, and then at the empty tomb. And then they are the first to go tell everyone about it. They are faithful to the very end. Why? Because those who have been forgiven much, love much. Now they can't put it all together. They're somewhat puzzled by everything. They're still trying to take it in, but they, publicly announce the fact that Jesus is risen. So you have in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44 and following, the mention of these women who had followed him, this is uh, 23 verse 49, who followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. And then you have in chapter 23 verses 54 and 56, they travel and witness where Jesus was buried, right? The women, verse 55, who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. And then finally we see that Mary Magdalene and Joanna, who was mentioned in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and some other women go to the tomb on that first Easter morning. And what a morning this would have been. You know, you get to the, if you'd never read the Bible before, like you knew nothing about Christianity or the Bible and you start with Genesis, you're kind, of, you're kind of perplexed by the time you get to the Gospels. And you've seen a number of deaths thus far, right? Genesis, it ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. But then you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you see that the Gospels end not with death, but Jesus' resurrection. And that changes everything, doesn't it? And for those of us who are in Christ, our story doesn't end with a funeral. It doesn't end with a funeral. And so when the women come, now they are puzzled that they don't see his body. And the, the guys in dazzling apparel, dressed a little better than Donnie, um, but, but, but in dazzling apparel, ask the great question, why do you seek the living among the dead? I love it in the message paraphrase. Why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? He's not in the cemetery. He's not here, he's risen. And the angels point them back to the Bible and say, hey, he told you guys this. There was solid reason for believing it, he told you. And Luke tells us in verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women who went and told these things to the apostles. So at first they're puzzled and I would argue that this is actually a good reason for taking this story to be authentic. There are two little bits of information that I think build up your faith today. And that is how no one seemed to anticipate the resurrection, including the disciples. <laughs> and secondly, this was big in the, in the context. Women were the chief witnesses of the resurrection. 
And that was big because their testimony was not accepted during that time. In fact, Celsus, who was a great opponent to Christianity, um, said that you cannot accept the testimony of the resurrection because, quote, we all know that women are hysterical. He called the resurrection the gossip of women about the empty tomb. He wouldn't have went very far today, would he, uh, old Celsus? Um, but but that, that was the view. And the reason I say that no one's anticipating it is an argument for the resurrection is that if you're just making stuff up, you don't add this because it, 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 it's not a good look. <laughs> As he keeps telling the disciples, hey, on the third day I'm going to rise again. And you don't have a single disciple to say, hey, we should just at least go look. They're not anywhere around. And the ladies are going to anoint the body. They're not anticipating a resurrection. You see, Luke writes it this way because that's the way it happened. He's not trying to push some agenda of a fairy tale. No, he's saying, I have nothing to hide. We have this situation where no one's expecting a resurrection. And we have it based upon eyewitness report from women. And here we see again, finally, Mary Magdalene. She is... She is uh, primary in each of the gospel accounts. She's been called before the first evangelist or the evangelist to the evangelist as she goes to tell the apostles that Jesus is not there. She at least gets Peter's attention, as Luke says in verse 12. He rose and went into the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He still hadn't believed it yet. <laughs> He's marveling that a single guy could fold his clothes. Um, right? No. He's marveling that Jesus is not there. And so they're trying to put these two things together. And it's the women who give this announcement. This kind of thing happened earlier in the Bible in various places where the women would sing and dance and celebrate and declare victory. Psalm 68, 11, the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the good news are a great host. Tom Schreiner puts it well when he says, women were not considered reliable witnesses in Judaism but in his sovereignty, decided that women would be the first heralds of the resurrection. And now we, church, are called together to proclaim this good news to the whole world. Death has been defeated. And we who are in Christ share in his resurrection victory. And we want to join with these disciples in proclaiming the good news to everybody. So three expressions of love. How do we show our love to the Lord Jesus? We who have been forgiven much, Adoration, assistance, announcement, or you could put it another way, we worship, we serve, we evangelize. That's how we live in light of this great truth. The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a great doctrine, redemption. And that is how this little movement in Galilee, chapter 7 and 8, came to us here in the triangle. The story is true, and there's grace for you. There's grace for all, all who would put their faith in this Jesus Christ. This is how you get in on the good news, by faith in Jesus Christ. And one day, one day our faith will end in sight, and we will see this same Christ. We did not see the Christ that the lady saw when she poured out her ointment all over his feet and expressed her praise to him. We didn't see the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ, but one day our faith will turn into sight, and we will see him. And one day we will see what these events have really achieved as Jesus ushers in a new heaven and new earth where he wipes tears off of our face and there'll be no more death and no more funerals. 
Just the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. And that's worth celebrating. That's worth using your resources to, to advance that message. That's worth telling everybody else about this Lord Jesus. And so we, th- we thank God for this great picture that he's given us through these ladies and for the great grace he's shown us in his son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your grace. And today we just want to return praise to you uh, as, a, as a response to what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's dealt with our debt that we could not pay. He has forgiven it. And we who have been forgiven much know that we should love much. So we pray that we'll do this now with our words of song. We'll do it at other times with acts of service and with the announcement of the good news to others. So receive our praise now, we pray. In Jesus' good name. Everybody said, amen. Amen.